evening. The last lecture, or the last occasion, I should say, of the Book Arts Press year is the annual Christmas party, which is Monday, November 13th. That will be uh, a mixed bag of treats. It will consist of showing of various films on paper making, many of them commercial. We've ordered up all the films from all of the commercial paper makers that we know of, uh, of the paper maker, paper making messenger of mankind type of film for those of you who've been around here for a while. Some of them look far worse, uh, although we're not without hope that some of them will be worth seeing. And we will also show the new film by the Bensons, Final Marks on Stone Cutting in Newport, and probably a repeat performance of Farewell at Owen Shirtlow, the last day that the New York Times was printed letterpress, which there's been a great demand for. There will also be the usual goodies, and you are invited indeed to contribute some if you wish, and uh, this will go on from 5 o'clock until about 10 or 10.30 on Monday, December 13th. The New York chapter of the American Printing History Association has been invited as well, as they always are. Again, it should be a splendid occasion. As is this evening, with Anne Gwynn speaking about uh, the past and future of the Johns Hopkins University Rare Book Operations. It's a pleasure to welcome her here, Anne, Anne Gwynn. Very pleased to be here. This is my first visit. Can everybody hear me? Um, the present situation with special collections at Johns Hopkins University is a rather complex one. And before I attempt to describe it or to make some comments on future plans, I feel it's essential really to trace the history of the slow emergence of special collections at Hopkins. Why Johns Hopkins does not have a well-known and a well-used special collections, as would befit such a distinguished university, stems to a great extent, I think, from the unusual traditions and circumstances in the past development of the university itself. And because that past is still so much a part of our present, I have called this talk What's Past is Prologue. To begin with, Johns Hopkins is not a typical American university. It's small enough to be a college, approximately 2,000 undergraduate and 860 full-time graduate students in the liberal arts and sciences, but it chooses to be an institution with emphasis on research and publication, much more like the large state universities of the Midwest and West or the old private universities of the Northeast. Although the original trustees were unrestricted by Johns Hopkins' will, and could have established a college based on an already familiar pattern, they decided to set up a different type of American university where new learning would be acquired by investigation and research and disseminated through publications. When the first president, Daniel Coit Gilman, retired in 1902 after 25 years of service, President Elliott of Harvard said of Gilman, your first achievement has been the creation of a school of graduate studies, which not only has itself been a strong and potent school, but which has lifted every other institution in the country in its departments in arts and sciences. I want to testify that the Graduate School of Harvard University did not thrive until the example of Johns Hopkins forced our faculty to put their strength into the development of our institution of graduates. And what was true of Harvard was true of every other school in the land." End of quote. Thus, from its beginnings, Johns Hopkins developed in a unique way. Knowledge gained in part through original research was discussed in the seminary, a group in which professor and students freely exchanged ideas 
as they sat around a large table in a room lined with books. Now known as a seminar, this method of instruction has become a mainstay of American graduate education. The emphasis on specialization in research, the free interchange of ideas between professor and student, the intimate relationship of the scholar, student, and his tools, either his books or his scientific apparatus, soon became a trademark of the Hopkins tradition. So also were the scholarly journals, founded as vehicles for this research, six of which were established before 1900 and are still nationally important, and the creation in 1878 of the Johns Hopkins Press, the oldest continuously operating university press in the United States. With this emphasis on scholarship and research, one would expect that the formation of a library with strong resources for research would be central in the plans of the first president and trustees. The first library accession book is dated 1874, two years before the university officially opened, and a librarian was appointed in 1876. In President Gilman's first annual report of 1876, however, he states clearly what plans he has for a library. Quote, the trustees have made an appropriation of $30,000 for the purchase of books, diagrams, apparatus, and scientific collections. It's not proposed to attempt at once the formation of a large library, for the Peabody Library of Baltimore, numbering 60,000 re recently purchased volumes, has been built up as a reference library for scholars. And so long as the university remains in the city of Baltimore, professors and students will have easy access to this collection. It's proposed, however, to buy at once such books as are needed every day in the university, and to keep a portion of them in one convenient ready room as a ready reference library and to distribute other portions among the classrooms and lecture rooms. As the university develops, a great advantage will come to it from its proximity to Washington, where the National Library is of great and increasing value. Now, three points raised in the report are of particular interest, I think. One, that the Peabody Library, so near at that time, just four blocks away, in fact, and so generous with its resources, would become the main research library of the university and least until the university moved to a new campus. That a small reference library would be acquired and other books would be distributed among the classrooms and lecture rooms. And three, that the proximity of Washington and the Library of Congress would be extremely beneficial to Hopkins. These three characteristics have in one way or another influenced the development of the library and its collections, especially the distribution of books throughout the various departments. This strong trend towards departmentalization, the easy access to materials, and a dependence on local libraries in Baltimore and Washington was expressed by the first librarian, Thomas C. Murray, in his report of 1877, when he stated that in accordance with principles set down by the trustees, special libraries have been placed apart. It is hoped, he said, that there will grow up around each department of the university a complete apparatus of books suited to its needs. Murray also arranged the library in rooms easy of access and open for reading and study. In addition, he made arrangements for faculty and students of Hopkins to use periodicals in other libraries in Baltimore. As the university grew, so also did these trends in the development of the library. By 1891, President Gilman, in a speech given at the opening of the Sage Library at Cornell, described what he called the unique advantages of the diversity of libraries in Baltimore where a student or scholar could find the centralized research library of the Peabody, the public library of the Enoch Pratt, and the specialized departmental libraries of Johns Hopkins, where the arrangement was, quote, under ten roofs and in even more compartments, so that the teachers and students of any branch may have at hand in the seminary or laboratory 
the books most important for the prosecution of that study. When the Hopkins Library was moved into larger quarters in 1894, this departmentalization and provision for easy access to material, now an integral part of the Hopkins tradition, was maintained in a more formalized way. In 1915, when the university moved to its present campus, the Homewood campus, three miles north of the old downtown location, the library was placed in the humanities building called Gilman Hall, a building which seemed to embody this concept of departmentalization and decentralization. The university librarian's report for 1926-27 described it as follows, quote, Gilman Hall is unique and has attained renown as a solution for graduate work in the humanities. It's the first department house among libraries, professors of a subject, their students, and their books making a suite. A later university librarian, in a report as late as May 1956, reiterated this point. The library is a congerie of personal libraries, he says. Collections in particular subject fields are shelved in stacks directly across the corridor from faculty members doing work on these subjects. By 1956, there were 11 departmental libraries and reading rooms scattered across the Homewood campus, four in Gilman Hall, where there was also a large central reading room, mostly for undergraduates, and seven in other buildings. With departmentalization came direct and easy access to the books. Not only could a professor or graduate student walk a few steps across the hall to reach a reference uh, room or book stack, but faculty and even some graduate students had keys to the stack areas. In the same librarian's report of May 1956 just mentioned came the rather desperate comment, quote, it's doubtful if there is another university of comparable size and complexity where even a modest number of scholars borrow a book from its library without signing for it at some library desk or book station. It's important to realize that although many other large library systems had departmental libraries and of course still do, they also had a central library building. At Hopkins, except for the undergraduate reading room, the library consisted only of these departmental libraries, all of which were interspersed with academic departments, seminar rooms, and so on. A library department, such as cataloging, for example, could be next door to a professor's room on one side and a seminar room on the other. The library, without a name or special identity, was simply part of the conglomerate of the academic departments in Gilman Hall. The library building as such was not built until 1964, when the present Milton S. Eisenhower Library was completed, at which time over one million volumes were brought together under one roof from different areas of the Homewood campus. I have spent a little time in tracing the development of the Hopkins method of teaching and research and its inevitable effect on the formation of the library because I feel this tradition has had a direct bearing on special collections. A rare book department or a special collections area by its very nature is a centralization of material that is special in one way or another, regardless of its subject. And because it is special, it has to be restricted from general use and easy access. I think that one reason Johns Hopkins had no rare book room or special collections department until the 1960s is that the concepts of centralization and, restricted and restriction were contrary to the traditions and habits of Hopkins' academic life. The reason was not, in any case, that there was a lack of rare or special material. Indeed, from its earliest days, the Johns Hopkins Library has been the fortunate recipient of numerous gifts, many of which were rare and special. By 1927, the librarian in his annual report was asking for a treasure room because, quote, our library is much richer in rare works than many persons imagine. 
1929, an exhibit in Gilman Hall, 55 Incunabula papyri in manuscripts, seems to illustrate this point. Apparently, these rarities were first stored in a vault, but when it was found to be damp so that books long untouched sometimes emerged covered with mold, the librarian's report says, they were set into shelves of the reserved stack where they were inadequately protected from possible theft and dust. In 1930, the librarian was able to announce that a glass-enclosed lock case of 35 feet of shelf space had been built in his office for storage of rare items. This, he said, until the case is outgrown and a treasure room is provided elsewhere, becomes our rare book room. Some special collections, however, were set aside in their own rooms in various parts of Gilman Hall. The Hutzler Collection of Economic Classics, for instance, begun in 1903 and consisting of books and manuscripts in the fields of economic history and thought, mostly from the time of Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill, including over a thousand letters to and from Mill, was to be found in the Political Econ Economy Seminary Room. The Tudor and Stuart Literary Club, founded and endowed in 1923 by Sir William and Lady Oslo in memory of their son, used its book funds to build up a good collection, including a fine group of early editions of Spencer, used as the basis of the Spencer Verorum edition, edition of 1933. These books were kept in the wall cases and small vault of the Tudor and Stuart Club room on the third floor of Gilman Hall. And a Sidney Lanier manuscript collection was for years stored in an alcove of the main reading room, until eventually in 1942, on the centenary of Lanier's birth, a Lanier room was formally opened in Gilman Hall. This room was also to house other manuscripts and first editions in American literature. It was not sufficient for many rare books, apparently, because an article the next year in Ex Libris, the Friends Newsletter, declared, such of our rare books as chance to be in Tudor and Stuart Hutzler or, Lanier, or the Lanier collections are permanently housed. The others, and they are numerous, should someday have a better home than we can provide anywhere in Gilman Hall. At least one more collection, however, was fitted into Gilman in 1944 when Lawrence Hall Fowler gave his outstanding book collection of books on classical and Renaissance architecture. This collection, rich in many early editions of the great Italian architects of the Renaissance, as well as English, French, and German works, is now well known to students of art and architectural history, mostly because of the excellent printed catalogue of the collection published in 1961, long out of print, but reprinted this year, just came out. Mr. Fowler also refurbished a room in Gilman Hall for the collection, as well as leaving a small endowment for its upkeep. Although all these collections were scattered about Gilman Hall in separate rooms or in locked cases in the librarian's office and at different points in the stacks, with little supervision or special care, they were at least identified as special. And it's difficult to assess how many rare and valuable books were sitting in the general stacks as yet unrecognized. The librarian's reports over the years mention that the library had far more rare books than most people imagined. But because they were so dispersed in the departmental libraries, their impact went by unnoticed, except by the librarian and his staff. For example, by the mid-1950s, the very good German collection of books and manuscripts, an important working collection now in the Special Collections Department, were in the basement of Gilman Hall. And the books of Professor Havens, whose collection forms the nucleus of our English literature material in Special Collections, were in the general stacks. These two collections alone numbered well over 10,000 titles. One of the largest and most valuable gifts to Johns Hopkins University came in 1942, when John Work Garrett, Baltimorean and American diplomat, bequeathed his home called Evergreen House and his library of approximately 35,000 volumes. Two miles north of the campus in beautiful grounds of 35 acres, 
This 19th century classic revival house was a well-known landmark in Baltimore. At the time of John Garrett's death, the library reflected his interests in travel, natural history, Americana, and early printing, as well as his father's interests in literature and the graphic arts. Approximately 8,000 of these volumes represented fine copies of very rare works, such as all four Shakespeare folios, a magnificent set of the Audubon Elephant folios, a valuable collection of early exploration and travel to the New World, and a group of incunabula in the vernacular, to mention just a few. Although John Garrett made no specific restrictions in his bequest, he did state that he hoped Evergreen House would become a memorial to his family and that it would be open to qualified and competent students who could make use of its collection. He also requested that his wife be allowed to live in the house after his death if she wished. Mrs. Garrett did choose to live at Evergreen House until her death ten years later, during which time the activities and lifestyle of Evergreen, already established by Mr. Garrett, were maintained without interruption. Mr. Garrett's librarian, Elizabeth Baer, who had built up and catalogued his collection over the years in accordance with his instructions, continued to perform these duties after his death, so that the library remained, until some time well after Mrs. Garrett's death, a private gentleman's library. Indeed, it was not until the Hopkins Graduate School Circular of 1959-60 that the Gra Garrett Library was even included in the general description of the Hopkins Libraries. During the ten years that Mrs. Garrett lived alone at Evergreen, she became increasingly concerned that after her death the university would not maintain the house and collections as her husband had desired. In 1946, therefore, Mrs. Garrett wrote to the university trustees that she would set up a foundation which on her death would be charged to maintain the house as it had been when the gift was accepted. This plan was formalized three years later in her will, in which a board of trustees for the Evergreen Foundation was appointed and a sizable sum of money was set aside as capital for the foundation. Attached to the will was a letter to the Evergreen trustees in which Mrs. Garrett stated that in the event that the books and manuscripts were removed from the house, the Evergreen trustees were to divert the endowment so that it would no longer benefit the university. In 1952, after Mrs. Garrett's death, the Evergreen House Foundation became a reality. The foundation still exists, and the house remains today much as it was in the Garrett's lifetime, including all the books still in the house. By the mid to late 1950s, then, the situation with the rare book and special collections of Johns Hopkins University was as follows. Various locked cases containing rare books were scattered throughout the 11 departmental libraries. Approximately 1,600 books were kept in locked cases in the librarian's office. Most manuscript items and some important editions of American literature were to be found in the Lanier Room of Gilman Hall. Three discrete collections had their own rooms in Gilman, and the Garrett Collection was two miles away in Evergreen House. In addition, scattered through the stacks of Gilman Hall, there were known to be many items which should have been designated rare, but were not. There was no rare book department, no treasure room, and no librarian who was trained or appointed to be responsible for the rare collections. In the early 1960s, as plans were made for the construction of a centralized library building, there were discussions about the disposition of the rare collections both at Homewood and at Evergreen House. The centralized building was, of course, the Milton Eisenhower Library, which we now have. John Berthel, the librarian at the time, in a document sent to President Milton Eisenhower in March 1961, made the following recommendations. It appears that the most satisfactory solution of the university's rare books and special collections problem is to establish a central department for handling these materials. 
The difficulties we face in terms of service and added costs if Evergreen becomes this central facility are major ones. In addition, the size and nature of Hopkins Special Collections will increase in the course of time, and the use of these materials will also inevitably increase. This contemplated increase in the size and use of these collections further argues that they be located in the Homewood campus, close at hand, in order to better serve the research interests of faculty and graduate students. And he finishes by saying, if, in spite of these reasons, it becomes necessary to move a portion of these materials to Evergreen, the number so moved would be relatively negligible initially, possibly 10 to 15,000 items. If we do this, we still face the necessity of providing appropriate quarters for the ones retained on the Homewood campus. That was a great mistake in my opinion to make that recommendation at the end. Despite the librarian's main recommendation, however, when the whole matter was brought up a few days later at the Joint Committee of the Trustees of Johns Hopkins and the Evergreen House Foundation, it was decided to recommend that, quote, the less frequently used, unquote, rare books, approximately eight to 10,000 volumes, be removed to Evergreen and that space for the other rare items in Gilman, approximately 20,000, be, be found in the new library building. Thus, in 1961, the Johns Hopkins trustees voted to ratify the decision that Evergreen House be designated a rare book library of Johns Hopkins. The librarian's report of 1962 also stated that Miss Baer had been appointed the librarian of rare books and special collections at Hopkins University. The report continued, during the year, transfers of certain items and collections from the Homewood campus to the Garrett Library were affected. The university's very fine Bible collection and 84 in Canabula were, the, were among the items going to new quarters in the Garrett Library. Other materials we, will be selected for transfer during the course of the next several years. And so they were, with the result that by the time the new Milton S. Eisenhower Library building was dedicated in 1964, the special collections of Johns Hopkins University, formerly without their own department or identity, found themselves in two rare book departments in two buildings two miles apart. There was no easy way to define what material was in which place, since the less used idea was not always accurate. For example, the Fowler architectural material, was, which is very much of a working collection, was all taken to Evergreen. Nor was there a complete record in any one place of what material there was in special collections generally, let alone separately. Although staff were appointed to work in the new special collections department in the Eisenhower Library, it would be several years before anyone with rare book and manuscript training and experience would be assigned to the area. Miss Baer had too many responsibilities and ties to Evergreen to be able to spend much of her time in the Eisenhower Library. From all accounts, it seems that the newly created Special De Collections Department of the Eisenhower Library languished, even to the extent that the attractive reading room with its handsomely designed wall exhibit cases, as well as all the workspace, were soon reassigned to interlibrary loan, which needed additional room. This reallocation cut down the space of the Special Collections Department by at least one-third and left the department in cramped, unattractive quarters. Now for the present. We have, as I have indicated, as of the end of June, two units of the Special Collections Department, one in the Eisenhower Library and another at Evergreen House. Altogether, these collections comprise approximately 75,000 books, one million manuscript pieces, and a sizable sheet music collection. In addition, many books which should be in Special Collections still remain in the open stacks, a legacy from the Gilman Hall days. There's still no complete listing in one location of all the material in these two units, 
nor are the cataloging records in any loca location always complete and accurate. Generally speaking, the collections are not nearly as accessible as they should be, either because of a lack of cataloging or inadequate publicity or on account of the inconvenient or unattractive reading areas. All of these obstacles have led to underuse of the collections and to an inevitable paucity of information on the part of almost everyone of just what resources there are. In addition, some of the points about the library which President Gilman raised in his annual report over 100 years ago are still with us today. Washington and its libraries, easier to reach now and even more impressive than they were in 1876, are used consistently by Hopkins faculty and students, not always to complement the Eisenhower collection, but sometimes instead of it. The Eisenhower Library runs a free shuttle bus to the Library of Congress every week, and I know of at least one Hopkins professor who plans to hold a graduate seminar in the Folger Library next year. And the other points of easy access and departmentalization raised by Gilman crop up from time to time. There are still faculty members at Hopkins, for instance, who feel that to have any material restricted in any way is counterproductive to scholarship. To complicate this picture, on July the 1st of this year, Hopkins acquired the Peabody Library. That research library, which you may remember, was so important to the university in its early days. This library, which now consists of approximately 250,000 volumes, a staff of seven, and a magnificent 19th century building in a historic area of downtown Baltimore, has become a part of the Special Collections Division of the Eisenhower Library. From its foundation in 1857 until the end of the 19th century, the Peabody Library grew rapidly into an important research collection, which reflected the best scholarly works in all academic fields except medicine and law. Major strengths include British history, history of art and architecture, including um, a lot of material on the decorative arts, history of science and technology, including the proceedings of most major scientific societies, English and American literature, Greek and Latin classics, and genealogy. Although there are several thousand volumes printed before 1800, including 55 in Canabula, the collection is predominantly 19th century. Much of the material is documented in the monumental printed catalogues of the collection. Uh, the first catalog was printed in 1883, had 13 volumes. The second had eight volumes, printed in 1896. All of them were reprinted by G.K. Hall in 1961. All are now out of print. These catalogues were important acquisitions of most major research libraries of the day. In the 20th century, when the Peabody Endowment could no longer support the collection as it had been able to, the library fell on hard times. Its readers declined, the books and building began to deteriorate, and the collection became more or less moribund. In 1966, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, Baltimore, took over responsibility for the collection and refurbished the building and initiated a conservation program for the books. This year, financial stringencies of the Pratt Library forced Pratt to agree to yet another transfer of the Peabody Library, this time to Johns Hopkins. One could say that Peabody has come full circle, back to the university that it helped to nurture. And it seems only fair and very appropriate that Hopkins should now help the Peabody in its hour of need. How are we coping with this inherently difficult and, and complex situation? Well, it may surprise you to learn that we are cautiously optimistic, mostly because after years in which the special collections were neglected, 
at Hopkins, the university is now showing some support for their development. Um, two years ago, President Muller, the pr president of Hopkins, himself put into the library's budget a line for the position of special collections librarian, a position which had not existed for several years, and even then only as a temporary one. And in the past year, with the addition of some new positions, the staff has increased to five and one-third professional and one and one-third support positions, full-time equivalent. In addition, a newly refurbished reading room in the Eisenhower Library has been established, a vast improvement over the previous cramped and noisy one, and the removal, at considerable expense, of an obtrusive cement and steel staircase, which descended into the midst of the department, a relic from the past, has made room for a pleasant reference and exhibit area. Also, the handsome wall exhibit cases lost many years before to interlibrary loan have been rescued and installed in this new exhibit area, which now boasts seven exhibit cases, which doesn't seem probably very much to any of you, but it's a big step forward for us because we had none before. Special Collections now puts up about three exhibits a year in the Eisenhower Library, about four at Evergreen and about four at Peabody, and some of these are accompanied by printed brochures or flyers. Modest though it is, the Special Collections Department in the Eisenhower Library now has a pleasant area where materials can be exhibited and where readers can do their work in an atmosphere conducive to research. With the introduction of standard policies and procedures for the security and use of the materials, procedures often impossible to implement in the past for one reason or another, the department now has an air of professionalism which has impressed faculty and students who use the collections. In other words, the department now has an identity that the staff can promote and that users are able to perceive. With this feeling of identity in mind and the backing of the library administration, we produced a 16-page illustrated brochure about the collections, which has been sent to all ARL libraries as well as to local libraries and interested individuals. I have some copies of this here if anybody would like one. And also, one of, and about this particular brochure, one of the recurring comments about it was, we never realized Hopkins had so many good things. We have also made a printed flyer for the central reference desk in the library in which users are instructed how to find and use material in special collections. And we hope, of course, that these publications, as well as our exhibits, will not only publicize our holdings and encourage their use, but also stimulate further gifts. A conscious effort to attract donors and to have closer ties with the friends of the libraries is also easier now that the department is a more cohesive unit and a more visible part of the library. In a further attempt to draw attention to the purpose and contents of special collections, we put together an informal one-hour presentation in which various members of the department talked about different aspects of their work, as well as ways in which special collections material can be located and used. At these sessions, some um, items from the department were placed on view as examples of our holdings, and a tour was given. So far, these presentations have been strictly in-house since we felt that members of the library staff were one of the key groups for us to reach in our efforts to make special collections more visible. To date, we have met with nearly 100 library staff members in groups of approximately 12 each, and the results have been quite gratifying. Many of these people were sincerely interested in what they saw and heard, and even long-time staff members admitted to learning a great deal. And we hope now in this uh, academic year to um, extend these uh, programs to graduate students and maybe, maybe to faculty. While it's been possible in a relatively short time to create and promote an identity for special collections and to make the facilities pleasanter and more conducive to research, 
it will take much longer to make the collections more readily accessible through the modern techniques of cataloging. At the present time in the Eisenhower Library, there is a large backlog of completely uncatalogued rare material. I'm embarrassed to tell you what it is. I won't tell you what it is. As well as several groups of only partially catalogued collections. And at Evergreen, although there is a local card catalog for all the items kept in the house, only about two-thirds of these are represented in the Eisenhower catalog. Approximately only 1,000 titles at Evergreen, uh, that's about 3%, are catalogued according to modern standards and included on a national database. And in an attempt to remedy this situation, we have applied for two grants for um, cataloging retrospective conversion to put it onto, into machine-readable form. I hope we get at least one of those grants. One of our problems, and possibly a unique one, is of course the split in the location of our collections. Our ultimate aim has to be the consolidation of these units. No matter how visible and accessible we can make the collections, they will never live up to their potential for research and scholarship until they are consolidated. And while there are political and practical reasons for having to go very carefully at doing this, we do hope that we will be able to accomplish it, but the university administration is in favor, in principle, of accomplishing this. It's just a matter of how we can do it without losing the endowment or offending everybody inside. In the meantime, we are attempting to deal as best we can with the inconveniences and serious problems of this split in the collections. At Evergreen, we have recently instituted tighter security regulations over use and access of the materials. Although security and indeed fire hazards will always be a major problem there, just by virtue of the fact that Evergreen House is a 19th century mansion that was not constructed to house rare and valuable collections. These problems are accentuated by the fact that the library has no control over access to Evergreen House, which is often used by the university as a place to entertain its important guests to dinners and other functions. We are also attempting to make the collection at Evergreen more available, not only by better bibliographic control, but also by offering to transport almost any item from Evergreen to Eisenhower for a reader's convenience. If a person needs to consult more than one or two items, however, he is encouraged to go to Evergreen. Also, during the last two years or so, we've encouraged professors, when they are using the resources of Evergreen, to consider holding seminars there. The Art History Department, for example, has organized classes and projects based on the Fowler Architectural Collection, and these have been very successful. A number of the students in these classes have become quite attached to the aura and ambience of Evergreen, which e easily catches the imagination of a budding art historian. And finally, in our presentations to the library staff mentioned earlier, we've tried to inform the staff of the resources and facilities at Evergreen and how they may be used so that they can pass this information on at the central reference desk. They see, of course, far more people than we do in special collections. In this discussion, I've not yet touched on collection development because we were unable to address our energies to any collection development plans until certain fundamental requirements for a special collections department were established requirements such as sufficient staff policies and procedures for daily operations, security precautions, and so on. Once we had an established identity, we have been able to write a collection development policy and for the first time to start very tentatively to build the collections in a more systematic way. Our budget at this stage is very small, but we are already beginning to increase it by selling some carefully chosen duplicates. In addition, we've been able to reinstate for special collections several endowed funds which were originally given to support specific collections, 
but which had for many years been funneled into the general library funds. Gifts, however, will have to remain a major source for our additions. A third source of growth to our collections, and a very important and pressing one, is the transfer of books to special collections from the stacks. And there are literally still thousands of books in the general stacks which should be identified and transferred to special collections. It's a monumental task, but we are nonetheless proceeding slowly. Any reader in the library can and does make recommendations on the transfer of a, of a specific item, each of which we consider carefully for inclusion into special collections. And in addition, collection development librarians, who are, are people in the library scattered throughout the library staff, are requested to check all books in their subject areas for imprint dates before 1700 in any language and before 1801 in English with a view to their transfer. We've just started trying to get all of the uh, ESTC, books that qualify for the ESTC into special collections, but we have, we've just scarcely touched that whole group of, of books yet. Although this identification procedure will take time, and the logistics of any transfer will be difficult in terms of staff time and space, the result will give us a better grasp on just how much material should be transferred to special collections. I should say also a few words about the manuscripts and archival collections which make up a part of special collections. Besides various useful resources for the study of German, English, and American literature and economic and political thought, the manuscript collection also contains important material on the development of higher education in the United States, especially graduate education of which Johns Hopkins was a pioneer. Originally, no distinction was made between material pertaining to Hopkins and to material of a general nature, but in 1971, an archive was formally constituted to collect and process the records of the university on the Homewood campus. Known as the Ferdinand Hamburger Junior Archives, this unit does not come under the jurisdiction of the Eisenhower Library. By the time the Hamburger Archives was established, however, the Eisenhower Library and its predecessors had gathered together quite a large quantity of university archival material, which had been deposited in special collections. During the past year, a policy has been written which distinguishes between the material to be housed in special collections and the material to be housed in the archives. The archives is in the library building, although it's not part of the library administrative. In general, the policy states that the Hamburger archives will include all the official documents and records of the activities of the development of the Homewood campus, and special collections will hold only the personal papers of Hopkins officials, faculty, or staff. Since the policy was implemented in November of 81, we have transferred to the Hamburger Archives all the university archival material we held in special collections, with the exception of the official papers of the very early presidents of the university, which had become so much an integral part of the special collections department, we just simply couldn't take them out. And conversely, the Hamburger Archives gave to us all the personal papers of Hopkins people that they had accumulated. Just how the Peabody Library will fit into special collections hasn't yet quite been determined. The Peabody Library building is full to capacity, there's scarcely an inch of space in it, and certainly an evaluation of the collection has got to be made, and uh, some kind of estimate of how it relates to the collections in the Eisenhower Library. We know there is quite a bit of duplication, but uh, and we do have the right to sell duplicates from the Peabody Library in the agreement that was made between the library uh, between the Peabody and Pratt and Hopkins boards, as long as the money goes back to the Peabody collection. But this has not yet been undertaken. 
But the most important aspect, I think, is how best the Peabody can be used as a center for scholarship and teaching, because the university does not intend to maintain the collection and not have it used. President Muller has made that quite clear, that he cannot afford to have this library sitting down in the middle of Baltimore, which is not used. It costs about $500,000 a year, all told, to run that library. And it's got to be justifiable. Um, there are plans under discussion at present, and once the university administration decides which plan to support, we will start to reorganize. I'm sorry I have to be so vague about this. If I could have given this speech maybe in three weeks' time, I could have been more definite. These plans we have made in the library a recommendation to the university administration, which is now being considered, and we hope they will take our recommendation. I think it'll take about two more weeks for that decision to be made. And since there are a lot of uh, things involved uh, on the campus and in the city, I'm not at liberty to say what the recommendation is. But no matter what uh, course is taken, the integrity of that 19th century collection will be maintained. The collection will remain open to the general public, which was a stipulation in the original charter of the Peabody Library in 1857. And every effort will be made by Hopkins to reinstate the library to a center for teaching and research, as it once was. In this paper, I hope I've been able to demonstrate to you that despite many problems, Johns Hopkins does have an excellent collection of special and rare materials. Although the collections are dispersed, divided, and sometimes hidden, so that their importance is often obscure to all but the initiated, they nonetheless do exist. We have the resources, and it now remains, I think, for us to make them available to scholars. And in this light, I hope that all of us at Hopkins who are interested in the future of its special collections will remember the conclusion of the quotation, which I used as a title for this paper, What's Past is Prologue, What to Come in Yours and My Discharge. Thank you very much. Thank you.